Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome back to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm so excited that you're joining me today for an interview with my new friend, Susan Schmidt. And Susan leads human resources for applied materials, and it's more than 20,000 global employees. She has more than 30 years of experience in HR, providing executive leadership, not only at Applied Materials, but also at Rockwell Automation, where she was SVP of HR and the Kellogg Company in many HR leadership roles. Susan has been described as innovative, strategic, engaging, and more, and she has a passion for for creating value with any organization wherever she works. And Susan is also the author of an upcoming book called Healing at Work, The Adult Survivor's Guide to Using Career Conflicts to Heal Your Past and Build the Future You Deserve with co-author Martha Finney, who's actually the person who introduced us. And I'm grateful, I know. Martha, for that. So Susan, welcome. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, really great to have you on. We were introduced by Martha Finney, your co-author, and started chatting recently. And you told me all the things you've been doing in your career and that you're working on. And it, I was like blown away. Like, wow, there's a lot of stuff to unpack, a lot of things to talk about here. And I know you give a lot of keynotes and talks. And of course, you got the book coming up. We're going to focus in on HR and talent development and on competency models today, something that people 
either love or hate. Many people, I think, hate. So we're going to get into that. <laughs> but before we do, let's talk up a little bit about your background. I'd love to know, you know how you got to where you are today. I think the benefit of the background is less about what I did, although we can certainly talk about that, and more about the lessons that I learned along the journey of things that I really decided weren't working anymore. And so I, you know, from a career standpoint, I've been in HR, like you said, 32 years, been blessed to work across industry, both in the U.S., outside the U.S., and I've pretty much done just about every job you can do in HR. I've been a people manager in HR since I was 26, so that's 30 of those years. And having had the privilege to work with leaders all over the world, employees all over the world, really pleased to share with you, I think, some different ways of thinking about talent as a result of, of having done a lot of the traditional HR work that I think is, is good, but I think there are things that we can be doing more effectively to create more clarity in our companies. Yeah, I mean, you've had a, a wealth of experience across different types of large companies, lots of different HR roles. And when I just think about the background you've come from uh, in HR, just so people have an idea, you know, coming up to become a CHRO, have you had a lot of different types of HR positions like generalists and benefits and talent development, that sort of thing? Or did you come up in one kind of defined path? Yeah. It's a great question. I really started in compensation. So after graduate school, I had a graduate degree in industrial organizational psychology, which was great because it was a practice of people at work, plus all the quantitative analysis, a lot of uh, statistics courses, very heavy math. And so it was a very natural place to start in compensation, which is pairing essentially how do you pay people, which is all quantitative, with the art of what really is going to motivate and retain talent. And so started my career in Chicago and spent a number of years in compensation working at two different companies in Chicago. And then I actually took a little bit of a shift and worked in a management consulting company, a very small management consulting firm based in Michigan. And really powerful experience in terms of having PL accountability, cash flow responsibility, sales responsibility to go sell consulting to big customers. And had the opportunity to work in multiple industries, dealing with all kinds of different projects. So that was very broad. I was in that consulting firm for three years. And I think it gave me really good insight about the business. You know, how do you run a consulting business? The president of the company was very generous and giving me a lot of responsibility. And uh, I could talk a long time just on those three years in consulting, learned a ton, missed being on the inside of the company. And, you know, as a consultant, you're always by design on the outside, ended up joining the Kellogg company and Kellogg was great. I really feel like I grew up there. I was there 12 years, worked in compensation, uh, was a project manager in organization development, ended up becoming what was called, this is back in the late 90s, director of people services back before we really had shared services organizations. So Kellogg was a little bit on the front end of designing the, you know, the COEs, the business partners and the shared services model. And I had the privilege of going and building that out of, you know, scratch, basically. And over time, that role grew. So it started out with U.S., basically U.S. shared services responsibility, grew to North American. So we had Canada. Uh, we went from benefits administration, all the administration, mobility, and they just kept adding things to it. So it eventually became HR services. And I had employee relations. I had the HR systems plus all of the administrative benefits management. So managed that whole group. From there, I went into large business partner role, vice president of HR for a $4 billion business at the time and worked in that business for a number of years and then had the opportunity to go and be head of HR over in Europe as the head of HR for the UK business. So I had European HR responsibilities as a journalist plus uh, primarily the UK business. 
And then from there, you know, that's really what led me to the opportunity to join Rockwell Automation. They recruited me out of England, out of Kellogg's in that essentially business partner role to come and be the chief HR officer. So I would say a fairly, you know, I really started in the COE. So I started working the COE areas, but had the opportunity to do a small business partner role when I was a project manager in OD and then take on that big business and then go into the UK role. So that's how I got here. I'm not sure how I got here, but that's how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a long and winding road, it's right? And we and make these road. decisions it is. at the time and then you end up in this great position. You know what You know what I will say though? Can, can I just add one yeah. thing? The two best moves I made in my whole career that led to my CHRO position were both backward yeah. steps. In other words, no I took downward moves. When I left consulting, I had three different job opportunities. Two of them were at, you know, kind of interesting managerial level roles. The Kellogg job was to take a step backwards and go back in, in, in the compensation department as specialist. But I did the analysis and decided the Kellogg opportunity was going to be better for me longer term. And that proved to be true. It looked like I couldn't keep a job. I had so many opportunities in the 12 years there. The other time when I took a step back was moving from being the vice president of HR for that $4 billion business to take the assignment over in the UK, which was technically a smaller job. It was a billion dollar business at the time. And the title was smaller, but I didn't really care what the title was. I was just excited to be able to go and, and uh, learn how to take everything I learned from a US and Canada standpoint and really think, you know, what are the differences when you're working in different countries? So I just wanted to mention that point. I, I think career moves backwards, sidewards, up, you know, downwards, whatever, if they enrich you and develop and broaden you, I think it's going to be good for a long-term career track. It's so cool. I love that you mentioned that because there's so many people feel the pressure to keep moving up and taking that position that's up, even though they feel drawn to maybe something else that might be take a step back or, you know, it looks like ostensibly, you know, on paper, it's a step back, but it's actually better to get the experience internationally or in a bigger company or in a smaller company, whatever it is. And it's funny, I just introduced you recently to my friend, Christine DiDonato, who was on this podcast a long time ago. And she always talks in her programs about how the old ways of the career ladder is gone and people now are moving laterally and backwards and upwards in all different ways. And that's the modern way to approach your career. And it sounds like you've done it that way. Exactly. And again, I don't, it was none of it was by design. But when I look back at some of the, the best opportunities I had, the two where I took a little bit of a smaller job ended up being the most important in my whole career. Awesome. Well, you've done a lot and you've risen to this, you know, very senior role as a CHRO in a, a huge organization, 20,000 employees, and you've gotten experience to see what things work and what don't work. And one of your strong points of view, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is on this idea of competency models. And uh, I know you have a keynote you call, it's time to kill competency models. I'm also not a big fan of competency models, but I haven't really worked on the inside in sure. HR with those. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Why is it time to kill competency models? Well, here's why. So again, all these years of experience, if nothing else, I feel like I've learned a lot of things that don't really work. And along the way, I think as HR practitioners, we're all taught to develop competency models. And so I was working in one of those companies along the way, really good, you know, effective competency model. But I started to notice that even though we had the competency model, and I'm talking about the soft skills competencies, this isn't necessarily specifically around technical or functional skills, a lot of times leadership competency models, I really started to pay attention to the fact that we were still making mistakes, placing people into roles, using a behavioral-based interview 
on the competencies. Uh, that was one thing. And, you know, when I'd stand in front of a group of people managers, I would ask them, how many of you have ever made a mistake placing someone into a role? And including me, we all raise our hands. Basically, we've all made choices on talent that we regretted for lots of different reasons, coupled with employees right? So employees, number one reason for leaving companies is because they've received more career advancement or development at another company. And, you know, in all my companies, that's been true in terms of employee surveys. It's true when you look at the external benchmarking data as well. So I started asking employees questions about, you know, how do you feel about where you're at in your career? Do you understand how you're viewed by the company? Do you know what you need to do to move up in the company? I get employees, and I'm sure many HR people do as well, in our offices after they didn't get a promotion. They're upset, they're mad, they don't feel valued, they don't understand why they weren't selected. And many cases, they're on the edge of leaving the company when they've been skipped for a promotion. And so I got frustrated with the competencies that they, you know, went from an employee standpoint, we're often asked to do a self-assessment on a competency model. What I started to notice was that I don't care how many competencies you have, if you have 10 and you give it to someone to do on themselves, you know, your own self-assessment, they will say eight of those competencies they're really good at. Maybe one that they need to work on and one that's really bad. And almost everybody picks business acumen as the one that they need the most work on. Well, you know, that's not what really matters when we're making decisions about talent. So I got frustrated. And as I've evolved, you know, I kind of moved myself through this career. I've discovered, I think that one of the greatest things that we can do for our customers, our internal employees and leaders is create clarity. And frankly, although the competency models have been designed with the best of intention, which is intended to help people know what matters. I would sit in succession discussion meetings with leaders and they'd be talking about potential successors and they never really referenced the competencies. They were talking about other things. And so there was this big disconnect between what the leaders were talking about, employees doing their own self-assessments on competencies, getting skipped for opportunities and leaving the company, just like the data suggests. I got tired of that. I got tired of not being really able to explain to somebody in a, in a fairly consistent way what matters most. And the other thing that I think is really frustrating is that, you know, we read all the time different publications, whether it's Fortune or Forbes or Harvard Business Review about leadership. And I think it's really confusing about what really matters when we're assessing people for leadership roles. It depends on the next article that comes out or the next assessment from a consulting firm that comes out. And so it can become very confusing about, well, you know, it is, are the future leaders all about digitization and having knowledge and artificial intelligence and how to transform cultures? Okay, maybe, but is that all that matters to be a successful leader? And if you start trying to incorporate all these different trends on competencies, you know, in terms of what matters into your model, you're constantly feeling frustrated because you're never going to get anywhere. And so frankly, I think it was just feeling like I'm not helping. It seems like we're still not doing a good job of connecting the dots for people. And by the way, the competencies are generally very generic. You know, so you talk about strategic thinking is often one of the competencies. And so I started thinking, okay, strategic thinking, what exactly is that? Well, it depends on what level of work you're doing, right? So it might be a 12-month strategy aligned with developing a budget for 12 months. That's one capability. Or are we talking about someone that needs to develop a 20-year strategy for the entire enterprise? That's a totally different game in terms of strategic thinking. And so I think that the generic nature of a lot of the competencies, and then I think what companies have done, I can, I can talk about one of the companies I worked in, I won't mention the name, they had developed such a complex competency model with multiple layers of behaviors to describe 
what each of these competencies means. They incorporated it into every talent management program that they had to the point where it was so heavy. The performance management system had, you know, the, the what, what are you accountable for, and the how. And the how was literally 15 pages of competency language that, you know, I'm doing these assessments, uh, performance reviews on people, and I wanted to cry because I would lose track because there were so many competencies and so many behavioral descriptions, depending on what you're talking about. And you're in HR. That Think I about know, the other no leaders. <laughs> Luckily, we took a totally different approach, which is, I guess, a good lead into, so, okay, so what? So yes, competencies are limited. I actually think they create confusion, which can be very counterproductive to what the company most is trying to do, both in terms of placing people into roles, figuring out who, how to develop people, how to coach them, how to accelerate development, how to determine who goes on a succession plan. And for whatever reason, I've been incredibly blessed with amazing teachers, mentors, experts, thought leaders, some of them completely unknown in the field of HR along my journey. And one of the individuals in my career introduced me to a really simple model. It was back in the mid-90s. And frankly, I, I didn't really understand how powerful it was until many years later. And it didn't really have a name. You know, the original work that was done occurred over 30 plus years of practical work in organizations all over the world, big, small, for-profit, not-for-profit. And what the research and application within all these organizations determined was that when you're trying to determine who's most suited to do a role, four things matter, sort of four broad buckets. Those four broad buckets, again, were introduced to me in 1996, include the following. The first one is obvious. Everyone gets this one. It's skills, knowledge, experience, and education. Every job has a set of requirements around SKI, skills, knowledge, experience, and education. In fact, many times leaders put way too much emphasis on that category. But we all know cases of when someone did not have what would be the required ski to do a role, ski, S-K-E-E -E, for skills, knowledge, experience, and education, and yet they're still successful. And we all know examples of people who had the ski, went into a role and failed. Just a quick story. I had a boss years and years ago who on his resume, he looked like an A plus HR leader. And yet I had a leader in the business that I was working for who basically said to me one day, if I ran my business like your boss runs HR, we would never sell a box of cereal. And so even though he had all the technical skills, knowledge, experience, and education to do the role, he didn't stay in the company very long. I don't know exactly what happened, but he was there, I think, less than 14 months. And generally, people can relate to this, that you know, a lot of employees say, well, wait a minute, I have the skills, knowledge, experience, and education to do the job. Why did Andy get it and I didn't? And it's sometimes hard to explain it. So that's only one element of this model that matters. Important, but there's more. The second category is really called, it's all about complexity of work. It's called capacity for complexity. And basically what it means is that work varies in complexity and people's ability to handle complexity also varies. And so you can't assume that all people are created equal in terms of their ability to navigate complexity. And what's really interesting, it's, it's a really simple concept. Managers make this judgment all the time, every single day. And I can interview anybody who has direct report, and I can ask them this question. I want you to tell me about your direct reports. And all I want you to tell me is which of those people on your direct reports team are a good match for the complexity of the work? Which ones in your team are bigger than the job? In other words, they can do more than what the job requires. These are the people that we often have to keep challenged because they're able to do more than the requirements of the role. If they're not challenged, sometimes they end up doing things outside of work like nonprofit boards, political roles, whatever, but they're people who have a lot of capacity. And then 
leaders can also tell me when someone's in a role that the, the job is bigger than the person. Sometimes it's because the person's new. Sometimes it's because the person is getting overwhelmed by the complexity. And every manager can also tell me who could do your job, which is a judgment of capability to navigate more complexity. So we don't have time to go into all the details, but if you're ever interested, I can build out the, the factors of complexity and what that means. And so this is a really key one because leaders will use code words like, you know, she doesn't seem to really be able to juggle all the balls. Yeah. Right? We've heard that. If you've sat in a succession discussion or had a conversation with a leader talking about a potential person to go to go and do a job, you hear language like that. That's an indicator or a symptom that the person's struggling with managing the complexity mm. of the role. But we never really put meaningful words around it. We all assume like, oh yeah, I know exactly what that means, you know. Yeah, it's just like a gut feeling yeah, or something. Yeah, right. Well, you know, especially explaining that to an employee, you're not managing all of the balls very well. Or worse, he doesn't really see around corners. Okay, how far out are you asking me to see? Are you asking me to see 12 months out around a corner? Are you asking me to put together a plan that requires three to five years? And I have to be able to see how things are converging to be able to align around what we should be doing today to prepare for three to five years out. Right. Or if you're a CEO of the company, are you trying to see around, seeing around corners that are 10, 20, even maybe 30 years out? You know, And so seeing around corners doesn't really help me explain to people what they need to do differently. And so that's really that capacity for complexity. The third category is my personal favorite. It's called temperament. And basically what that means is our nature. We all show up in the world with pluses and minuses. We all have good days and bad days. But what, what really matters more matching people to roles is a simple question, which is, is there any element of this person's temperament that could impair their effectiveness in this role? or the effectiveness of others. This kind of cuts through all the stuff on competencies because generally, you know, if you have a list of 12 competencies, you may have one in there about being collaborative, but you know, the person's not collaborative, but because they're really good on the majority of the other competencies, the person doesn't realize that not being collaborative could derail or stall his or her career. The issue with temperament isn't trying to fix people. It's really just trying to help people understand what they're doing or not doing that's getting in the way. And if the person isn't willing to moderate whatever it is that might be causing them to not be as effective as possible in a role, they're probably going to stall out or even possibly get asked to leave the company. And so the interesting, about interesting thing about temperament is it could also be a really positive aspect of someone's temperament that impairs them. So for example, in my career, I've had a lot of people in the organization who aspire to be CEO. And let's just say, arguably, they could handle, they had all the skills, knowledge, experience, and education to do the role. Let's say that they, the board determined that they had the capability to navigate that big jump up from senior vice president to CEO. But the element of temperament that kept them from getting that assignment was they were too nice. They didn't like taking tough decisions that affected people in a way that would be perceived as negative. Or they kept weak people on their team, and that brought the whole team's performance down. And so temperament isn't necessarily, you can't judge a person's temperament, whether it's good or bad. It's all role dependent. And you may need someone with a really aggressive, take the hill kind of temperament to go turn a business around that's not profitable because that individual is willing to make tough decisions, cut heads, uh, create profitability, whatever it might be to be effective in terms of the business outcomes. But keeping him or her in that role on a longer period of time 
in more of a maintenance role may be a terrible decision because a person's not suited to do that kind of work. And so I love temperament. It's capacity for complexity and temperament are generally why people excel in their careers or stall or get asked to leave the company. And then the final category, which often gets overlooked in competency models, is called accepts role requirements. And basically what this means is every job is a set of obligations and demands. And it's really important that we line up whether or not the person that we're asking to do that job or who is in that job fully accepts all the obligations and demands of the role. So for example, it's not uncommon where we promote really strong technical people into people management roles. They want that job. It's a bigger job title. They get more money. It's a bigger bonus. And they don't really want to manage people. They don't really want to hire and fire, do performance reviews, coaching. It's a nuisance. But if they don't accept that part of their role, it's going to be a mismatch. And so those four elements we've named it the suitability model. In other words, determining suitability for role or suitability for future roles. And when you're thinking about matching people to roles that they're best suited for, you need to line up, you know, there's never a perfect candidate for any job, right? You always have to make trade-offs with any any position you're filling. And when leaders, and by the way, good leaders do this naturally. It's very power, it's very intuitive and powerful because people that are good at people assessment do this naturally. But giving them this language kind of cuts through all the noise of the competencies to help them really understand what matters most. It's all in the context of a specific role or a future role. And when you start comparing people on these four factors or the four categories I described, you could start really getting a good sense about who's going to be best suited to do this assignment. Or from a development standpoint, how do I best develop Susan to be more effective in her current role? Do I really need to focus on testing her ability to navigate more complexity? Or do I really need to build her ski, her skills and experiences? That could be it. Or is there some element of her temperament that if she doesn't figure out how to moderate, it could be a derailment? Maybe she gets impatient and she comes off judgmentally to the people she's working with. That's the language people talk about when they're sitting in succession discussions is, you know, it's not about sharp elbows. That's another one. Well, he's got sharp elbows. All right, well, let's be specific. What is it about sharp elbows that's impairing him? Is it impairing him? If he goes into another assignment where he has to lead a lot of people, is that elbow, sharp elbow, what, what is that really about? Let's talk about the element of temperament that could be getting in the way. Is he too competitive? Is he all about winning at the cost of everyone else losing? Is it all about oppositional element of temperament? In other words, always want to argue and debate and crowd everybody out. It could be rigidity. A person's a black and white thinker, and no matter what opinion you share, they're going to shut you down. Those are the realities. So I like temperament because it's underneath behavior, and it's easy to figure out because all you have to say is, is anyone doing something that's getting in their way or getting in the way of other people? So when you stand back and you look at people through the lens of the suitability factors, you get a much more comprehensive assessment. You are able to use language that's consistent. And of course, I'm giving you a high-level interview or high-level introduction in this discussion. There's obviously training that goes initially with the HR team and then ultimately with leaders how to implement it. Uh, but I guarantee you it totally changes the, the dialogue, discussion, applicability. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com 
to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website, again, is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. and practice of talent management programs. Yeah, it's such a comprehensive model. I love it. And it's a great replacement for the competency models. I see what you're saying. I mean, basically you're saying it's the traditional system is broken because we put all these specific models in place that are out there somewhere written down in a rule book. But when you get in the actual boardroom and they're talking about succession planning and who should be the next SVP or CEO, whatever it is, yep. no one even talks about the competency models. They're nope. just talking about their gut feeling about this and that. Exactly. So you're trying to create basically a more scientific model I'm glad you mentioned training because my question, I'm sure the question in the minds of a lot of people listening are, okay, it's cool that you have all this stuff, the the ski, the capacity for complexity, the temperament and accepts role requirements. How do you get people aligned on that model so sure. that they're all speaking the same language in that meeting and they're making the right decisions, their judgment is sound instead of it still just being like gut feelings on this and that? First of all, before I answer your question, it's a great question. I have to give recognition to who really designed the foundation of the model. The original work was done by a man named Dr. Elliot Jacks, J-A-Q-U-E-S. And he was a Canadian, actually started his career as a medical doctor. Had his medical degree from Johns Hopkins. He wanted to help people. Ended up getting his PhD in social sciences from Harvard. And you know, I'm way oversimplifying his work, but he set out on a path to try to figure out how do you create more effective organizations. And his body of work really, again, is oversimplification centered in three broad areas. How do you design your organization to drive your strategy? In other words, how do you design roles to really drive the strategy you're trying to drive? How do you match people into those roles? That's what we name the suitability model. And then finally, how do you create a set of managerial practices that foster trust and performance? His research and management consulting work occurred over many years, 35 years, I think, in global companies. So I want to give him all the credit for the original foundation. There have been a number of contemporaries who have built on his original work. I'm not going to be able to name all the names, but Mark Van Cleef, Jillian Stamp, Ken Wright, Nancy Lee. There are a number of others who took that original foundation and enhanced it. A number who overlaid the business context of how do you create future value, current value in the marketplace. So I didn't want to lead anyone to believe that that was something that was created by me or the companies I've worked in. Nice. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is how do you teach people how to actually start applying it? And one of your questions I know that you've asked other people on your podcast, so I'm prepared to even mention it right here, is what are your lessons learned? Mm. What would you do differently with some of the things you've introduced from a talent standpoint? When I was at Rockwell, I was so clear about the power of the suitability model that I started to introduce it to the executive team. And what tends to happen is that when you come from a place of not pushing something, in other words, you put it out there and you let leaders start to absorb it and realize the power. Like I said, it took me a little longer because I was slow when I was first introduced to it. But what I did when I was first at Rockwell was just introduce it into sort of the back of a competency model, to tell you the truth, because the competencies were quite embedded uh, within the company, which again is very normal. But I'd also established with the help of the CEO, a leadership capability advisory committee or council, if you will, looking at future potential leaders in the organization to help guide HR, myself, on the journey of leadership and how do we think about it. And one of the executive sponsors that I brought on to the Leadership Capability Council was looking at the, the suitability model, which is sort of at the back of the competencies. He said, why aren't we just using this for everything? 
Because that's generally what happens is it's so intuitive and it's natural because it aligns to what good people managers are already doing when they're assessing people. It, what happened was, you know, I was able to shift it in terms of the focus became the four categories of suitability. And with his partnership, we ended up being able to move that forward in the organization. And the mistake I made and what I'm doing very differently at Applied Materials was when I started to introduce it out to the business leaders, they loved it and they started to really grab onto it. But the problem is us HR people have learned our whole career how to do competencies. And so I moved too quickly with the business and it kind of caught on like fire in, in a good way because they're like, this is great. You know, how do we build a selection process around this? How do we develop development plans that reinforce and support this? And I got ahead of the global HR organization. So I really had to slow myself down, slow down what we were doing in the business and really focus on creating sense of, well, it's really change management with the HR team. And so when I came to Applied, because I'd had 11 years at Rockwell to see the power of the suitability model, but I also learned the lesson of you can't move faster than your HR team because they're the competency experts. How do we bring the HR team along as the first core group from a change management standpoint? And so we were very intentional about that in the company at Applied Material is, first of all, I spent a ton of time with the global HR leadership team, really setting the stage for why do we need to rethink competency work? Because it certainly was much better than not having anything. But then also to start getting them involved in understanding what wasn't working as well as it could be and how could we be even more effective in helping our leaders. So that was the first, really first key block is bringing the global HR organization along, starting with the talent team, right? They're the ones who are driving everything. But that was a big thing. And then what we've done, and again, I did a similar thing at Rockwell, was to just start slowly, right? It's a new language. It's a different way of thinking about talent, although it's aligned, is I don't immediately go out with, we're going to completely overhaul the selection interview process. It's too much. It's got too high of stakes. It affects people's lives and teams and managers. And so I like to start slowly where we just introduce the model in a way, and we just say to managers, we just want you to practice using this model to have a good development discussion with your employees. And we also introduce it to all employees. We're actually in the middle of doing this right now at Applied, where we say to employees, here's a, a new way that's going to help you get more clarity about what you need to do in your career to develop and to move forward, whatever that looks like for you. And so it's a very soft I guess it's almost like a soft launch. It's, we, we're doing you know, required training for people managers. You need to understand the model. It's going to help you better assess talent. For employees, we're just saying, we want you to think about yourself and your development through this, this framework because every employee in the company is required to have development objectives each year. And so that's all we're trying to do in this fiscal year is just introduce it, do an intro training. I did intro sessions for our managing directors and above, and we rolled it out to people managers, but everything on the front end was HR. HR was in the loop, the, you know, way at the beginning and then throughout. And then we have a four-year roadmap, right? The team originally came back and said, well, here's the three-year roadmap to transform all of our talent management practices. I said, it's too much. We don't want to overwhelm people managers. Companies require people managers to, to be responsible for so many things that if we overwhelm our people managers, it will fail. And so let's just go slowly. 
And I knew what would happen because when you start to teach people managers how to think through the, the lens of suitability, and this is already happening in, in the managing director, vice president session that I did, I did a live session for all of our managing directors and vice presidents, I think two or three of them, people raising their hands saying, okay, this is cool. How come we can't put this in selection right away? <laughs> you know, so we're actually accelerating some of the work because the managers are pulling for it, but still it's all... I put it more in the category of we're just slowly getting people used to it. Some people will get it immediately. Some people take a little bit longer. The other piece that we're doing as well is working with the executive team. I'm really lucky the CEO loves the model. It's one of the reasons why he actually, I think, brought me to the company was he said, we never talked about competencies in any of these meetings. They're irrelevant. The suitability is relevant. It really is what matters most. And so working with him and his leadership team. So what we did last year before we did any rollout to anybody in the organization is we started to introduce suitability model into our succession planning discussion. I only ask the leaders to come up with an, ass an assessment on just two candidates who could be potential successors for big jobs, just to start practicing. Simple, easy, their HR leaders were fully trained and there to support them through it. And then when we did our executive promotion process, we also used the suitability language for talking about people that they were recommending for promotion. And so it's a multi-pronged approach of how do you teach it, but then Eventually, you know, there's so many different talent management practices, selection, development, coaching, performance management, you know, it goes on and on. You can't do it all at once. And so it's an intentionally designed, thoughtful, slower generally than what managers want. But then when they start pulling for it, we'll start to reassess the four-year schedule. That was a long answer to your question, but that's how we're doing it. Yeah, that's good. I think a lot of people were wondering about that stuff and, you know, trying to wrap their heads around it, figure it out. The one last question I'd ask that I'm I'm trying to imagine, you know, people in the talent development who are listening to this are thinking is, you know, I'm in an organization and we've already got a bunch of these competency models which are kind of half adopted you know, half not. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this story many times. How do I, I'm on board with you. How do I navigate this and, and try to get the organization on board to go forward with something like this and get rid of the competency models? That is a great question. And I think, thank you. yeah, you're welcome. When I think about how would someone in an organization move this forward? Um, you know, there are a couple different approaches that I would take. First of all, there are a couple good books out there. They don't, call it the suitability model, but there are a couple of good references. There is a book by a woman. She's actually one of my mentors. She worked uh, with Dr. Jacks for 20 years. She wrote a book called The Practice, uh, what's it called? I think it's the, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact title. Her name is Nancy Lee, L-E-E, and I think it's called The Practice of Managerial Leadership if I'm not mistaken, the most recent edition. And so she... The Practice of Managerial Leadership. Yeah, yes. I think that's it. Yep. So that's a good foundational book. It's very, it's very much about the pure original model. I would say the model that the suitability model, the one I've described to you is based on the original work, but it's not the original work specifically. There, there were some very core principles around actually the original model didn't call it capacity for complexity. That second category was called information processing capability. And, and while conceptually, what Dr. Jacks was talking about was capability to navigate complexity, he doesn't really describe it that way. And I don't think it's described in a way that's practical for organizations. And it's, I think it's actually a little bit academic sounding. So I like 
some of the adaptation of other leaders and contemporaries who've added to it. There's another leader who's written a number of articles where he he talks about, he doesn't, again, he doesn't call it suitability model. I don't think, I think if you Google suitability model, I may be the only one who comes up with that name. But uh, his name is Mark Van Cleef, V-A-N-C-L-I-E-A-F. And he wrote a couple of different articles where he talks about different levels of CEOs. You know, in other words, not all companies are created equally in terms of complexity, and therefore CEO roles are not all equal in terms of complexity. And how do you differentiate CEO roles? I could forward you the article. I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the exact title, but I would read a couple of these things and the other thing that I would do is, you know, I'm happy to, to talk. I've written, a, I've actually written a chapter. This is how Martha Finney and I originally met. I should have referenced my own chapter first. <laughs> Martha Finney, if I get in the habit of that, eventually. I know, I'm not, just not used to that. Martha Finney put a book together a few years back called HR Direction. And in her book, I have a chapter called Building Leadership Capability Using the Suitability Model. Yes, that is the book. So there is a- I have the book right yes. here, HR Directions. Yes. You've got a great chapter in there. You probably memorized the chapter, I'm sure. Yep. It is, uh, that's actually a good place to start is read the chapter in Martha's book and then you can wrap around some of these other resources. And I do a number of keynote speeches on this topic and, you know, actually building on an entire system around it, done that at my last company. The company I'm at now is actually taking and really accelerating some of the work that we did before. It's really quite amazing. So I think it's- If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Just starting to have the dialogue about is the competency model helping us or is it confusing? And, you know, I have a whole other talk on the role of HR in terms of creating clarity and minimizing confusion. So I I think it's important to really challenge our conventional thinking and really question whether or not it is indeed making a difference in the company. And, uh, and I know that, you know, there's lots of companies out there using competencies. And when I think about CEOs, you know, you know, the research CEOs don't stay in CEO roles very long. And so despite having succession planning, competency models, you know, whatever, companies are still making mistakes at the CEO level. And, you know, so I think suitability helps crack the code a bit on what happened, what went wrong, what didn't get assessed, and how do we take that into consideration when we're, we're helping organizations figure these things out. Yeah, excellent. So it sounds like it starts with a lot of education. There's some good books out there, starting with your chapter in the book, HR Directions by Martha Finney. And then, you know, taking an assessment of how things are actually working now. Are they actually working uh, or are they a waste of time? And should you be trying different things? And then starting to have conversations with people in the business about how things are working, introducing the idea of doing things differently and how that could work and what the benefits are of that. Explaining in business terms, you know, you mentioned one of the, the top competencies that people have a need for, especially in HR, is business acumen. Yes. So if that's a need for you, we've already talked about that on this podcast many times. Go learn about the business and how the business works if you want to be a successful HR executive like Susan. I want to go back. We've talked about some successful things you've done 
you've already talked about a sort of a failure or a mistake you made, which I think was a great lesson there about moving too quickly. Are there any other trends? I know you you are knowledgeable of a lot of other topics. We specifically think about talent development. Any other major trends in talent development that you're following right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because there are a lot of trends. I read your trends document too. I downloaded your trends document last week. Oh, thank um, you. What I'm seeing in terms of trends, and I, I don't think this is a big secret, but the whole world of digitization. And you know, if you think about companies today, if the company isn't already a software company, it's going to be a software company because it's the future. And so I think companies are all in varying stages along this evolution, this, this transformation to becoming more digitized. Really, I think companies are becoming data companies, frankly. If you think about the cloud service providers and artificial intelligence and the future of automobiles being you know, fully automated and the future of smart cities where everything is connected, everything talks with each other, every company is going to have a place in that future world of technology. And so I think the trend from a talent standpoint is, you know, how do you think about the future of work? You know, there's so many jobs that are going to be created that we haven't even begun to conceive of. Many jobs are going to become antiquated. Having a strategy around the future of work and how work is changing. I mean, I just think about the world of the digital world, the social media world, and all the different kinds of roles that have been created because of digital yeah. businesses and jobs right. that didn't exist five years ago are completely new jobs and people, you know, all these different platforms. There's a platform called, I think it's called Upwork, where you can go out and source yep. any work you I love want. Upwork. There's 99designs. If you need to go find an yep. artist to do anything, you just put the work out there. It's all crowdsourcing work assignment. Yep. Fiverr, there's tons of Yeah. Those. So the, I think there's huge trends around leveraging the, the digital social media world to solve business problems, as well as the, you know, there's, there's legacy businesses, right? Every company has its legacy core business, which has been sort of its meat and potatoes for years. And then you see companies, you know, moving into this new space. I think about the the big automobile companies, the the Ford Motor companies of the world, the General Motors, and and certainly Tesla, and even Amazon, all thinking about the future of cars and how it connects into all these different worlds. That to take a company that has been very good in the past with hardware, firmware, products to this evolution into subscription services, software as a service, artificial intelligence, how roles are going to change. How do you bring your workforce along on that journey? Where do you do upskilling of capability within the group? Where do you do reskilling? How do you bring in partners to help you augment capability that maybe you don't have internally? I think these are huge trends. I don't have all the answers, but it's really interesting. It's like the, the oceans are moving in terms of the impact for us as HR practitioners and as talent leaders to really think through that. Knowledge transfer, retention of key talent, upskilling, reselling, technology implications for all of this, not only in terms of how we do our own work, but also how the company becomes a different company. I think there's some interesting challenges ahead. Totally. And I, I love all everything you talked about. It, it's so true. It's so relevant. Almost every company is going through some type of digital transformation. I hear it all the time. You know, you mentioned auto companies. I used to give examples of this. You know, you hear Ford say something like, we're no longer a car company. We're a technology company that happens to make vehicles, yes. right? Or, uh, you know, Kellogg's is no longer a cereal company, right? They're a technology company. They just happen to make cereal. Exactly. A lot of companies are thinking that way. 
Um, we've done a few episodes on that. One that comes to mind for anybody that's really want to go deeper on this idea of digital transformations. I had a a guest on named Michael Lucky, who's an expert on this. So check that out if you're listening. And Susan, you've already mentioned a couple books. You've got a book coming out in May. Yes. And let me go back to my notes here again. Uh, that one is called Healing at Work, The Adult Survivor's Guide to Using Career Conflicts to Heal Your Past and Build the Future You Deserve. Yes. I know that's still, and I'm fam- getting familiar with this writing process now, <laughs> writing my own book, that you know it's going through the process, going to the publisher and everything. We don't have an exact date, but just give me the you know the real quick yes. uh, bit on what that book is about so people can look out for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. The book is basically about changing the workplace from a place that can be known as a stressful place to honestly a laboratory for emotional healing and turning workplace conflicts that happen all the time at work into growth moments. Basically, learning how to let go of self-limiting beliefs that many of us, me included, come away from our childhoods with that sometimes fuel our success but also can potentially impair and derail our success is how do you take those moments at work whether it's being missed for a promotion, whether it's conflict with an empl- another employee, maybe it's a disapproving boss. All these conflict moments can trigger old things from our past. And I can guarantee you for years and years and years of my own career, I was unconscious to some of the self-limiting beliefs and how at the workplace moments, I was getting hooked or triggered by things that reminded me of things that happened to me when I was younger that had nothing to do with what was happening at work. And so it's this essentially becoming aware that we can choose one of two career paths. We can either go down what I call the wounded career path, which is what I was on for a while, unconscious, unaware of how self-limiting beliefs were showing up, how our reactions and behaviors that we learned when we were younger to navigate sometimes challenging childhoods are typically what we depend on when we're in a similar feeling moment at work. And those things can really work against us. And it can have an impact on our relationships with colleagues. It can have a negative impact on our relationship with ourselves and can actually lead to a lot of the issues we see at work, depression, health-related issues, loneliness, isolation, stalling out in our careers, whatever. That's the wounded path. What we teach in the book is how to actually intentionally, and we gently guide leaders, how, uh, readers how to do this, leaders and readers how to do this, is to go on the healing career path and becoming aware that the conflict moments, uh, maybe get negative feedback on a 360 assessment. You know, there's lots of things that happen at work that create conflict, that when we start to go into those triggered responses, We actually teach our readers how to use that rather than going into the old reactive behaviors that lead us oftentimes into stress, anxiety, and worry to actually learning how to do it differently. And ultimately, my purpose in life is to teach self-acceptance to create a more joyful world. And what we're basically doing through this book is teaching people ultimately how to learn to be more self-accepting with very practical very practical, I can't talk, practical and applicable ways of re-navigating these moments so that the workplace becomes your laboratory and that you are able to get less triggered by other people. That when you do, the amount of time you spend there is much shorter. You don't go home and beat yourself up all night. You actually move through it much more effortlessly so that you can have start actually having some more fun at work. And it's not just about fun, but it's about 
an experience where there's less stress, there's less worry, there's less time in unproductive reactions. So that's basically what we teach people in the book. I love it. I love the concept, the whole thing. I know you're working with a great co-author on it and Martha. Yes. And, oh my gosh. Uh, and I love your purpose as well. And I was just thinking, I don't want to go down this whole rabbit hole, uh, but the power <laughs> of purpose, you know, I, we talk about all this stuff with work and it's very impressive everything you've done and we've connected already, but I just feel so much more connected to you. So powerful to hear your purpose about teaching self-acceptance and creating a more joy joyful world. I, I love that. And it's just, I want to support it. So I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Thank uh, you. Last question for you, for anyone listening in yes. HR, talent development, looking for ways to accelerate their own careers and maybe get to that CHRO or CLO role one day. What's one more piece of advice you would give? Well, it kind of goes back to one of the first things we talked about when I was talking about my career is I think, and, and I learned this, I did interviews with business leaders too, trying to figure out what's the right career track to become an executive in a company. In my interviews with executives and in my own journey, the ones who reached the top came to the top in a variety of different ways, but the consistency was their willingness to take on whatever job the company offered them. And it was the broadening and deepening of experiences and understanding of how the total system worked. And so, you know, backward step, taking an assignment that maybe seems like a really, you know, pain in the neck assignment with an opportunity to really prove that you could navigate through it. My experience is do as much in terms of different roles. You know, I personally think it's good to get different industry experience because you you see things. You know, I moved from different industries, consumer packaged goods into industrial automation technology and now into the semiconductor industry. And yes, each industry is different. The customers are different. The challenges are different. But you see things in ways that people in the industry don't see because they've never worked outside the industry. And so that's another piece of advice. I, I think it's really valuable to to have an opportunity to practice HR in different settings and absolutely getting an opportunity overseas, working outside your home country. Whether, you know, it doesn't matter what country you're from, I think having a non-home living experience professionally is critically important. Love it. I love it. Get as much experience as you can in different situations outside your industry, outside your country, and that variety of experience and, and really taking whatever comes your way uh, will serve people well. Susan, this has been awesome. For anybody listening that wants Thank to get you. in touch with you, where's the best way for them to do that? Best way to do it, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think it's Susan Wallace Schmidt. I think Susan J. Schmidt, you can find for sure. Uh, the website for the book is susanjschmidt.com. Schmidt's with a double T. Got it. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. This has been fantastic. Perfect. Thank you again, Susan, for coming on, sharing your experience, your wisdom, and your advice with us. I really thank appreciate you. it. I know our listeners did as well. So thank you again for coming on the Talent Development Hot Seat. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again and take care.